0: Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving
1: the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantine of thePaleoMom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health.
0: Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 459. I want to welcome our special guests today, brood ex cicadas where if sarah <laughs> and i are quiet enough you can hear them yeah so loud <laughs> outside out like i'm the windows are closed <laughs> that's how loud they are um it's really kind of a cool experience to live through this like with the kids as well but I had a moment a couple of days ago where I was talking to Matt about how I'm going to miss Brood X when they're gone. And by the way, if you don't know about Brood X cicadas,
1: Google it. Super fascinating. They only come oh, out of the ground. Discovery. I think it was Discovery did this. Um, it was on the I, – I found it on the Apple News app. And it was a – like story of their life cycle. But then as you would scroll down and read the next stage of their life cycle, it had an animation in the background. It was fantastic. I will try to track down a link if a link is a thing that I can create based on that so that we can put it in the show notes. But uh, fascinating a little bit like you're not used to seeing animation while you read. It was kind of, was kind of a neat, it was like a neat multimedia experience to learn about 17
0: years. 17 years. Yes. 17 years they live underground and then they come out and they scream to mate. And like, that's, that's it. They die. Like they don't even (laughs) like eat. They, they just literally come up to mate. And then the larva aggressively lives underground for 17 years. Matt says they're like, they're, um, you know, quite the, the predators underground for a bug. But, um. And then they they come out once every 17 years. And so I had this moment where I was talking to Matt about, I'm going to miss them when they're gone. Because the hum has become kind of comforting. You know how, Mm -hmm. like, sound machines, you know? And so it's rained a couple of days and they're not as loud or as active when it rains. They're happy when it's, you know, sunny and warm. And on the days that it's rained, I was like, you know what? I'm going to miss them when they're gone because they've gotten used to their noise. And he's like that's okay. You'll be 56 when they come back again. (laughs) Oh, It's like, Oh, thanks for that one, buddy. (laughs) But, um, I mean, it's the kids first experience with them. So, uh, we are local to this area. Unlike most people in Northern Virginia, Matt and I both grew up here and our kids have been, you know, raised here their entire lives. But, they only come once every 17 years. So this is my kids first year with them and they're very friendly little bugs. Like they'll they don't bite, they don't sting, they don't do anything negative to you. So the kids really enjoy like letting them crawl up them and they're quite large so you can like check out parts of their body without needing a microscope or anything and um it's been it's been good, but it's also
1: Very loud in the background. So I just (laughs) wanted to acknowledge that's what's happening. It's it's not a weird, like mechanical hum. It's a completely natural
0: hum. Yep. And by the time we record again, they'll be gone because that's how short their life cycle is. (laughs) They wait 17 years to just live for a week. that said, we are going to completely switch topics. We're not actually talking about cricket flour at any point in this show, but I will say that brood egg cicadas um, are edible. There's a guy in Leesburg, mm-hmm. Virginia, who has like a, got a taco truck that made national news <laughs> making his cicada tacos, um, but we're not going to bake with cicadas, I promise. We are talking about baking today, <laughs> but we are completely switching topics and... um Yeah, I don't think we're talking about cricket flour at any point, but that is a Uh, thing.
1: It is a thing, and it's actually, like, surprisingly non-offensive. It just kind of has, like, a a nutty taste to it. If it's finely ground, it doesn't have any weird texture. Um, And it's a very nutrient-dense flour option. It's funny, though. I hadn't really thought of it as we were pulling together the show, but let's acknowledge that... um, Insect protein is an incredibly healthy protein and that, uh, insect exoskeletons have a, like a unique type of fiber that you only actually get in insects or shellfish where you eat the shell, like soft shell crab, um, that is very beneficial for the gut microbiome. They're very mineral rich. Um, so they are definitely an awesome option that, uh, we have now acknowledged and we can move on. They don't sit well with me.
0: I I remember when cricket bars were like all the rage in our community. And I tried so hard to make it work. And like, nope, they don't work for me. So (laughs) we we are not partaking in cicadas. We are not partaking in crickets. We will, however, happily talk about other flowers we do like um, and taste better, frankly, in cookies. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think it's interesting we've got quite a number of questions that we're going to dive into and as
1: we call this rapid fire I was going to say as always that word we're going to try
0: to get through them without being obnoxiously long-winded but that's a difficult task for us I will say um I was working on a new lactation cookie recipe a couple of weeks ago because my sister had a baby and I went back to our original recipe that we made you know gosh I don't know like eight years ago or something. And, um, my mindset on how and what I think of as flowers that I want to bake with is completely different. I mean, yeah, we've, we've talked on the show before about oats being a very beneficial, um, gut bacteria food and, You know, that post was very anti oat because most lactation cookie base is oat based because it helps the milk supply. But in the post, that original post, I was like, you know, strongly against oats. And then here I was recreating a regular lactation cookie recipe that was still gluten free because that's what I need. And um, that's, you know, I know what my sister would prefer. when trying to have a newborn baby and you're trying to reduce the amount of potential irritants, gut irritants for the babe. And so I was, you know, using oats in this recipe. Um, and I, I just thought it was fascinating to kind of have this question come up when I myself had been revisiting what those things are that we do or don't bake with and why. So I think that this will be a great topic as we not just have moved on in our evolution of kind of dogmatic thinking of like the prescription of how we eat, but also in our understanding of how these foods from a complete and holistic perspective affect our health, right? I think we we came from one point of view only, which is like potential irritants. And now with kind of a nutrivore approach, we're also thinking about what benefit it could have in a lot of different ways. And also, you know, in my perspective, especially it's, is it really beneficial to create such negativity around certain kinds of foods if the science isn't, you know, there to support it being a real problem for health? And so I I think it's a good kind of topic to revisit in
1: general. Yeah, no, I really, um, I really appreciate you sort of introducing the topic that way, because I think, you know, for me, both the sort of deep dive research that I've done for my gut microbiome book has really changed my perspective of um, how we define a health-promoting food, and then to merge that with all of the work that I am doing now to build a brand new website, which I really haven't talked very much about on the podcast. Um, but I'm I'm building a new site called NutriVore, and I am uh, really trying to... Take uh look at foods purely through the lens of what nutrients does this food contain. We can acknowledge that there are problematic compounds and that, you know, it's really important to understand our own individual sensitivities to those types of foods. I will never be able to eat gluten, I will never be able to eat dairy, I will never be able to eat soy. And I I recognize that those are common sensitivities, but rather than Uh, putting those foods in this kind of like um, demonized bin of like, these aren't healthy for anybody. I want to take a step back and look at how does this food impact the gut microbiome? What are the nutrients this food contains? And through those sort of lenses, make a more quantitative judgment, Um, really be able to say like, look, here is the nutrients per calorie that this food has. And when you look at it that way, you can see why other foods are a much better choice. And then when you layer on top of it, you know, common food sensitivities, we can see a more uh, clear picture of what makes a food a healthy food versus an unhealthy food that's based in science and not based on uh, this sort of like red light, green light, no, yes, food lists, right? These sort of rules that um, really group foods together based on you know, taxonomy of like, you know, their, their food groups, what like food families they're in when that's not always the the right approach, right? We can't necessarily generalize just because food is all, you know, grown in a similar way that it's going to have a similar effect on the human body. So I really like sort of the idea of revisiting how we've evolved in terms of how we, we bake, understanding that a lot of how we've evolved with how we, how we bake in our homes has come out of really trying to get away from this dogmatic approach to food.
0: And I will say both of us also, for those of you that are working towards um, autoimmune healing, both of us have been on this journey for a very long time and where we started is not where we are now. So I think, you know, from the perspective of dogmatic approach and diet culture or eating to enjoy something and not from the perspective of what is the best nutrient value like admittedly neither sarah nor i i'll speak for you because i know it's true (laughs) um 100 make choices based on like what's best for us all the time but we do so with knowledge and understanding of you know how it will impact us Mm -hmm. and um maybe we're doing it for mental or social well-being or different kinds of things but um, when you're doing that approach versus an autoimmune approach, where you're trying to heal, I I will say it is important to stick to the foods that are part of an autoimmune pro- protocol for that elimination period, so that you can heal and hopefully live life to the fullest. If that's what you're doing, what we're talking about today won't necessarily apply the same way, but hopefully. You will get to a point where it is, if that makes sense. So I no, just totally, yeah. Okay. I just, I'm like, we're talking about like two different things, and we know that we fluctuate between the how we approach things here. So I just want to be very clear on like an autoimmune protocol to, you know, reduce inflammation and. Put an autoimmune condition, hopefully, in a pause state, you know, whether that's remission or, you know, lack of symptoms or whatever. We're not here to be your doctors and tell you that we can heal you, but we can tell you how, you know, what we have seen and what the science supports as, as far as that stuff is entirely different from, you know, how we approach baking outside of those parameters. So just to be very clear. <laughs> Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: For sure. So why don't we get into um, this collection of questions? There's a lot of them, and I've kind of divided them into questions related to uh, flowers versus questions related to sugars and sweeteners. Um, So I'm going to start with a question from May. Um, May wrote, I keep hearing about more people baking with heritage wheat, even people with celiac sensitivity. Is heritage wheat really okay to eat, even though it contains gluten? I realize there's probably a lot of bioindividuality that goes into whether a food is okay or not okay for someone to eat. But what does the science say about heritage wheat and if it's that much better for us?
0: I am uh, fascinated by this question as well. I know it comes up a lot. And I um, also can say that what is available in the States is different than what's available in other countries. Mm -hmm. But um, as someone with celiac sensitivities, I do not ever mess with any gluten at all because the gluten structure itself is what is problematic to the body. Um, My understanding, and Sarah, I'm sure you'll dive into the science on this, is that gluten sensitivity versus celiac is where someone might see, um, lack of irritation in a different structure something that isn't like a modern looking gluten, but not celiac. No.
1: (laughs) Celiac gluten is gluten. Yeah. So, um, uh, yes. And maybe I think is the, the response there. So, um, I think Ancient grains are often misrepresented as having less gluten. And that's not actually the case. The gluten content of heritage wheat or ancient wheat, however you want to call it, is about the same as modern wheat. And so from a celiac perspective, you wouldn't expect them to be particularly different. Um, so that part, The but the other part is there have been studies that have shown that in people who are gluten sensitive but not celiac, that ancient wheat tends to overall have an anti-inflammatory profile, whereas modern wheat overall has a pro-inflammatory profile. But studies that have tried to isolate is that a difference in um it's it would actually be a difference in how, you know, a small difference in gluten that would make a big difference in how it's broken down. So the reason why gluten is so problematic for so many people is that it's not particularly compatible with our digestive enzymes. And so our digestive enzymes break that protein apart in very predictable ways and produces bioactive peptides, right? So short sort of proteins that are very good at interacting with the gut barrier, crossing the gut barrier, stimulating inflammation. There's been studies showing that those, um, they're called gliadin peptides because they're from the A gliadin fraction of gluten actually bind with receptors in the liver and even uh, manipulate adiposity signals that can actually cause people to gain weight. Um, They also are um, seem to interact with uh, receptors in fat cells. So there's sort of these different layers to the biological activity of gliadin. We know that people with celiac genes, even if they don't necessarily have celiac, are more likely to have these glide and peptides interact with receptors in the gut barrier that causes the release of zonulin, which increases intestinal permeability, aka leaky gut. So what some researchers have tried to do with ancient grains is understand, does this actually fundamentally change the gliadin peptides that are being produced as we digest gluten. And the answer is it doesn't seem to be. So studies have actually had a really hard time trying to identify what it is about ancient grains that make them better tolerated for this like segment of people who are gluten sensitive, but not celiac. And um, they've basically been able to sort of say like the most likely explanation is that it's a collection of small changes that add up to uh, an overall m- more uh, anti-inflammatory profile. And that would include some nutritional nutritional differences, some very small differences in how the gluten is digested. Um, they tend to contain, uh, the grains that is, tend to contain more polyphenols. They contain a lot more carotenoids, especially uh, lutein. And they do have a better effect on the gut microbiome. So kind of all together, those are why some people didn't tolerate heritage wheat. And I'll put a link in the show notes to a really good scientific review article that kind of breaks down all of the different studies that have been done to date that's trying to isolate why these heritage grains may be better. Another possibility in here is that they tend to be grown organically in higher quality soil. Um, whereas a lot of modern wheat is <laughs> roundup ready. so it's also adding glyphosate um to the mix, which we've talked about on the show before in our um, water episode. so um the it's it's possible that it's not even the wheat itself, but something about the herbicides being used in production or something about how it is processed after um, after being grown and so it's it's interesting like science has said like yep look there does seem to be um this measurable effect where heritage wheat or ancient wheat um is not problematic for for some people when modern wheat is and we've got all of these different hypotheses as to why and not a clear answer
0: i mean i'm still sticking to the fact of what i said though which is From a celiac perspective, I'm not diving in. Correct. (laughs) Correct. That's the right right. answer. All right. Um, Next question is also from May. I'll read it for you. How about that? Upside down world. Let's do it. What are your thoughts on baking with almond flour? I know you said it's not super great for the gut to eat a ton of nuts every day, but almond flour is such a staple in paleo baking. So would love to know your thoughts.
1: So I have had this like long journey with almond flour where it was like my go-to flour and then I didn't want to use it at all. And then it started, has started creeping back into my baking as, as a flour. Um, And the reason is, is that that it's crept back again is um, as we've talked about on the show before that uh, there's actually really impressive health benefits to consuming about one to two ounces of nuts per day, and almonds are one of the nuts that have been shown to be very beneficial for the gut microbiome. So, one to two ounces of nuts per day translates to about a third to two thirds, right? An ounce of nuts is about a third of nut flour. Um, so, so overall, you know that that to me makes me think nuts would be good. If I take the the Nutrivor lens. Um, almond flour is actually one of the more nutrient dense flour options, like not just wheat flour alternatives. It's much more nutrient dense than wheat flour. Um, but it's actually more nutrient dense than coconut flour or even cassava flour, um, which means it measurably has more essential nutrients per calorie. It's also a pretty calorically dense flour, but so are all flowers like there's that's that's something that all flowers um whether traditional or art- alternative have in common they all kind of offer pretty um pretty impressive calories per gram sort of punch and that's that's why it tastes so good um so i think you know if we're we're talking about making a treat right we're talking about making something special and so you know generally i think um we've accepted that it's (laughs) we're going to be having something that's an indulgence and it's probably not going to be the most nutrient dense food that we choose that day. And so I think that's okay too. I think that um, chemistry wise, I definitely prefer to use cassava flour. I think cassava flour um, has a better, it makes a better crumb. It has a better mouthfeel. It holds together better. um, It's easier to work with. Um, So I, I tend to go for cassava flour, as my go-to, but almond flour has become like my second. And often I'll now use a mixture of both depending on the baking application. If I'm making a cake, I'm going to use cassava flour, but if I'm making a muffin, I'll probably use a bit of both. And I do have other sort of more obscure alternative flours in my pantry that I used to use a lot more often. And now I find that it's only if I'm like going back to a favorite old recipe that uses it that I'll, I'll actually pull those flowers out. So that includes plantain flour, tiger nut flour, sunflower, seed flour, coconut flour, sweet potato flour, and chestnut flour. Um, you know, what's they kind of all have this thing in common that they all are way better in terms of nutrient density than uh, regular wheat flour, or even whole wheat flour. Um, They all have benefits to the gut microbiome. Um, They're all higher in fiber. They're all higher in micronutrients like vitamins and minerals. So they're all pretty good options. And I think that when you're talking about the, the difference in nutrient density between something like cassava flour and almond flour, even if almond flour is better, it's not the only criteria that I used for deciding what flour I'm going to use in baking because I want it to taste a certain way. I want it to have a certain texture. And so that's also part of my criteria under the overall understanding that I'm I'm about to make a treat. I'm about to make an indulgence. And so I've already decided this isn't, you know, it's not going to be kale and liver. And that's, that's intentional and that's fine.
0: <laughs> Although, I mean, if you find a way to put kale and liver in your treats, more power to you. Um, <laughs> sure. I will say I lean a lot into cassava myself and um have found that when i'm looking for recipes so i know we talk about how we develop recipes but most of you aren't doing that right most of you are looking for recipes um i want to point out that if you're looking at recipes that um are like a muffin or a bread or a cake there is a rise to the recipe and when i'm looking at recipes online, or in cookbooks, I am looking for a food photo that shows me a rise in those foods. So I make it less about like, what is the flour? Because I have not just almond flour, cassama flour, I've talked about oats that we cook with, I've got, um, I don't use all the flours that you mentioned, but I've got a ton of those. And also we didn't mention starches, like tapioca, mm-hmm. um,
1: or arrowroot,
0: arrowroot. And we ha- also have rice flours in our house. We use those a lot for actually savory cooking. And so um, we have almost everything in our house. But when I'm looking at a recipe to decide, like if I'm trying to make something that I've never made before, for example, um, just be mindful when you're looking at cookies that like if a muffin is flat, or if you're looking at like a bread that someone makes and the bread is clearly like two inches tall instead of like five inches tall coming out of the bread pan that you're going to get something that's really, really dense. And if that's not what you want, then you're probably going to have to find a recipe that uses different flours because some flours in and of the nature of the way you're using them aren't going to rise. And that's one of the challenges that people have With baking with almond flour is it's very dense and coconut flour even more so than that. Right. So it's it the if you think about the fat content of an almond or a coconut, it's much more dense and heavy than, say, rice. (laughs) right? Like rice Mm -hmm. flour is an entirely different thing. And that's why when you ask someone, can I sub this flour for this flour? It is never going to be a one-to-one swap because the protein and the fat and the starch content on all these different things are entirely different. So they will perform different in the way that you cook them. So just, I think I want to like add that as we talk about these alternative baking flours in general, because I think a lot of people are like, well, why can't I swap one for one? They just, they're entirely different in the way that they will perform. So, um, I think it, it's not just about the health perspective, but if you're, if you're making a treat of a cake and you like you, I want the cake to be good. I want the cake to be, Mm -hmm. you know, like if I'm going to enjoy it, I want to enjoy it. I don't want to be like, well, well, that wasn't really like worth all the effort of, you know, making it yeah. and whatever, you know? So, um, that's my, that's my
1: tidbit. Um, so I know that I have certain go-to flowers when I'm recipe developing for different types of baking. And it, as you said, Stacey, it sort of relates to that rise or sort of how well something is going to hold air. And I generally think that cassava is the easiest to swap out for wheat flour, as long as it's a recipe where gluten is not doing the work of holding an air. Um, so as long as it's a recipe where like eggs are included as a binder, right. And the eggs are going to help hold the air. Um, cassava flour can almost swap one-to-one. It's a slightly less cassava flour for wheat flour. Um, and then I really like like almond flour for muffins. Um, because it's a denser, it's a denser crumb. But I'll almost always mix them. Coconut flour, I think, is the trickiest to to use because it is it. It has such a high fiber content. It absorbs a lot of liquid, and generally, it's like a one to four ratio of like wheat flour and original r- recipe that you might be adapting to coconut flour. But at the same time, then it's going to have a sort of almost i don't know it's like a grainy mouth feel like it needs recipes um that work with coconut flour are recipes that rely very very heavily on a lot of egg for liquid typically um plantain flour and chestnut flour i feel like are kind of similar but chestnut flour has a different they obviously have different sort of flavors tiger nut flour is another one that kind of has a if there's too much tiger nut flour in a recipe, it's quite sweet, but it also kind of has a sort of powdery mouthfeel that doesn't work in a lot of different types of recipes. Um, so I think that, uh, Stacey, your point of, if you're following a recipe that you found online, it's um, it takes a lot of experience working with this, these different types of flours to have a really good sense of what can I substitute and have relative confidence this is gonna work out. it also takes a lot of confidence of this is what a cake batter needs to look like versus a muffin batter versus a cookie batter, right? Understanding the consistency and how, even it's not just about flours, but how different fats added are going to change whether or not something ends up, you know, like a cookie ends up chewy or a cookie ends up crisp has a lot to do with the types of fats that are in it as well. Um, And I think that, you know, I, I was an avid, home cook and baker before paleo. And I really leaned into the challenge of understanding the chemistry that meant that sometimes I had to throw things out because they were so bad. I was working on a cake recipe for the paleo approach cookbook, Stacy, that, um, I was, you know, it was in the days before cassava flour, there was a lot fewer options out there. And I was trying to use, I think I was trying to use tapioca and tapioca has a lot of mucilage fiber in it. So when it gets liquidy, it can help hold a recipe together, but it it can also turn into a very off-putting texture. I think I've told you the story before. My kids thought the funniest joke in the world, because we throw out so many of these cakes, mom, it's not cake. It's not cake. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, it just gets so gummy, you know? And
0: um, yeah. So I, I will say with With much confidence that sunflower can swap pretty close to almond flour, that um, most of the starches, so arrowroot, rice flour, tapioca, and even cassava can Mm -hmm. sub in small amounts. You cannot take like a giant cake recipe with cassava and like swap out for rice flour and have it perform the same way. But um, in small amounts, those starches perform the same way. When you start getting into some of the real alternative ones like plantain, tiger nut, coconut, sweet potato, chestnut, they have very specific reasons that people are using them and have tested carefully. So use that the way that it's intended <laughs> like just go with it <laughs> don't try to mess with it because um, the worst thing you want to do is make like what you think is one small tweak to a recipe and then the whole thing is ruined and it's time and money wasted and will just be a frustrating experience. So, um, I will say too, I've gotten to the point where sometimes when, for example, we want to make a birthday cake, like I'm so grateful for all of the gluten-free options that are out there and, you know, I'm having guests over or whatever, like we just get a gluten-free cake and it's gone and we move forward. Like we, you know, I I don't want people to think that you have to home make your own flowers to, if what your goal is to to have gluten-free baking. If you're trying to optimize health and you're trying to, um, you know, make things or you have allergens in your home that you're trying to accommodate, this is what all of this specialty baking is for. There's, like, no judgment in just enjoying a birthday cake and moving forward, as Mm -hmm. Sarah said. These are treats. Enjoy them. You're not putting kale or liver in them. (laughs) I do want to... um get to the next question though, which I think is a fascinating one as cassava has become more popular. Um, so Barbara asked the question specifically, I use cassava flour, but was told by my acupuncturist that I should not use it as it is a goitrogen. Is this true? Do I need to stop using it? And I want to add in particular, because cassava has become more popular with, for example, like the jovial noodles that you can use Mm -hmm. that are completely cassava. Um, and in, mixes like our friend Jen makes, um, autoimmune friendly, legit mixes. Um, Mm -hmm. maybe not if they require eggs, but I know she works really hard to make allergen friendly mixes. There
1: there are a couple of mixes that that are are autoimmune. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, and so this is one of those flowers that I know a lot of people who do have sensitivities lean on. So I'm curious on your science
1: on this. Yeah. So the, the, this is one of those, uh, grain of truth, uh, and then a lot of dots and then, uh, the, 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 not the correct conclusion at the end. Right. Um, so cassava as a root does contain what's called cyanogenic glycosides. Um, these can be broken down into cyanide, which, you know, is poison. Um, and one of the reasons why it's a poison is because it interferes with thyroid function. Um, and so, Consuming foods that are really rich in cyanogenic glycosides can uh, harm the the thyroid gland. Um, Cassava is not the only food that's high in cyanogenic glycosides. So Other foods include almonds, including the aforementioned almond flour, Um, apple seeds, um, stone fruit pits. It's one of the reasons. I remember this news story when I was a kid. It just haunted me of this person who... Love. It's probably an urban legend. It's probably not. I just remember it as a news story. It probably is just one of those urban legends, but they loved apple seeds so much that they decided to save all of their apple seeds from the apples they ate and then have like a feast of apple seeds. And they actually died from cyanide poisoning again. Okay. This is probably an urban legend, but I just remember this as a kid being haunted and like being terrified of apple seeds. It takes a ton of, you can eat a whole apple core. If that's your thing, a couple of apple seeds here and there is not going to give you enough cyanide to be problematic, but don't eat like a mason jar full of apple seeds. That, I, that would be bad.
0: Um, yep. Don't do it. Wouldn't be prudent. Nope, don't do it.
1: <laughs> um, bamboo has um, some cyanogenic glycosides. Flaxseed and lima beans. Um, just just to, to pull out the the foods that are sort of highest. Um, but and this is a big big uh, big but, um, which we're not going to put in the song right here. So um, sweet cassava. There's two different kinds of cassava: sweet cassava and bitter cassava. Sweet cassava is the vegetable that's imported into Western countries, and it has about the a tenth of the level of the cyanogenic glycosides of the bitter cassava that is grown in Africa and South America, and is a traditional food there. So it's already very, very low in cyanide to start with. And the traditional processing methods that have been developed actually remove, um, the cyanogenic glycosides from the cassava root. So this is why uh, sort of the traditional um, African preparation includes like grating or pounding the cassava and then soaking in water um, and then removing that water that rinses a lot of the cyanide out and then it gets turned into, you know, flatbreads and things like that. So when you're buying a commercial cassava flour, First of all, they are made with sweet cassava, not bitter cassava, and they are prepared in such a way as um, to remove the cyanide. So I know, for for example, my go-to is Otto's cassava flour, and they go through this preparation to remove the cyanogenic glycosides, again, starting from a, the version of the root that's low to begin with. So it is not something that you need to worry about if you're using a... Um, brand like auto's cassava flour. And even if you're cooking with cassava, you know, I have a recipe for, um, cassava fries on my website and it's a two-step process to make cassava oven fries, right? So you, you peel and slice and then boil the cassava and then you toss with some kind of delicious fat and roast it until it's crispy on the outside. Um, and the reason for doing that is again, right. That boiling step removes any, cyanogenic glycosides that are in the cassava even though it's low to start with so it's um, yes but no
0: I think it might also be a good moment to just like also throw yucca in with this because people use yucca and cassava interchangeably but they are
1: aren't they the exact same root what no yes they're the exact same root cassava manioc yucca and yucca are all the same root they're just different names for it uh huh 100%. Hundred percent. Oh
0: my gosh, you're so right. I just googled <laughs> it. Ah, as okay. always, as sometimes, always.
1: Sometimes I learn how look. to pronounce jojoba. So
0: there you go. Well, so he, there's there's another one for you. Is um, maybe you didn't know that yucca is the same as cassava, but um, we we have things here that are called yucca fries. They're not, we don't call them cassava fries as you called them so we do the same thing you have to properly prepare them which makes a lot of sense for as you said you know the original preparation of these sort of things so um and I love that Otto's is doing that I am not surprised but didn't actually know that fact so all of your knowledge bombs loving them okay I
1: have a knowledge bomb for you all right I'm gonna read Nina's question then okay so Nina wrote, um, I was wondering if either of you have suggestions on baking AIP at altitude. I have several desserts, biscuits, and cookies that I'm having a bit of trouble with and suspect it's the altitude. I've added baking soda and flour, which has helped, but some guidance would be wonderful as I'm not a baker.
0: So Sarah and I do not live at altitude, nope. but our friend Olana from Alana Amsterdam, Alan. Ilana's pantry say that three times fast no no thank you who actually wrote the forward to our first cookbook does live at altitude and has a great deal of information on her blog and in her cookbooks her cookbooks are um, all grain free I think they're exclusively almond flour Um, almost all of them she might use some coconut and stuff but she has um, great information available so we'll put a link in the show notes for you. She also, by the way, has um autoimmune disease. She I MS. She has MS. So I feel
1: like she's the OG grain free
0: uh recipe blogger. Uh for sure. She I mean that's why we like begged her to write the forward to our cookbook. And I remember when she wrote back and said, Yes, I cried for days. Like I couldn't <laughs> Because that's who as a family there was yeah. no like that's who we were to you early on and helping you like find a recipe to us that's who we
1: learned how to bake from right like I made a ton of recipes when I first when I first went paleo like she was um I I mean yeah OG for sure
0: yes so she's got great information for you what about fresh pasta on the AIP I have used cassava flour for gluten-free pastas in the past but I'm exploring options for the egg yolks any suggestion on the binding protein from Jeff
1: so um, I want to mention that you already gave a shout out to Jovial for their AIP cassava-based pasta. Um, that is a fantastic option. It's obviously not a fresh pasta, um, but there are now some options. Um, there, And there are some other smaller companies that are doing sweet potato-based or cassava-based pasta that don't have any other ingredients in it, right? It's like those one-ingredient pastas, which are uh, super awesome. Um, but in terms of replacing egg yolk as a binder, the nice thing about replacing egg yolk, it's a little bit easier than replacing whole egg. Whole egg is a bit harder because, uh, egg white is where most of eggs, uh, sort of binding capacity is. So egg yolk, we're replacing a, uh, weaker binder. So there, there's other things that can, can replace it a little bit more easily. Um, So typical AIP substitution for eggs, obviously something like applesauce or canned pumpkin is probably not going to work in a, in a pasta sauce or a pasta, fresh pasta recipe rather because um, apple flavored noodles, not, I don't think that's a thing. I don't. I mean, I've made cassava flour
0: noodles by hand. We have a like instruction on our blog on how to do it. And I can't imagine using something else because even something like a gelatin egg you know it seizes up over time and you're gonna have a real hard time as you're working with the dough to kind of like because you have to roll it out many times Mm -hmm. and press it out and all this kind of stuff like I just I I know that Jeff doesn't want to hear this but sometimes you just have to like admit defeat on some things
1: (laughs) and okay well I have I have one other idea for Jeff to try
0: okay well I was I mean the good news is is that they're is, there are some alternatives that are dried. <laughs> That's
1: true. But Jeff, Jeff has asked us questions before. Jeff is a chef, so I I understand he is in search for like the perfect. I mean, kudos AIP. to Jeff. Right. So um, so the thing that I'm gonna suggest that Jeff tries is like mashed fresh cassava, which again we've already sort of talked about the mucilage fiber. Um, so. Tapioca is also another word for cassava. I forgot that part. And that's why, if you mash cassava, do it by hand. Never use like a blender because it's so terrible, unless you're looking to make uh, snot root vegetables. So (laughs) I've learned this lesson the hard way. Um, And tarot root also has uh, sort of a similar sort of mucilage content. And that combined really well. Um, it's one of the reasons why uh, Jen has been able to create so many AIP, like her pierogi recipe that uses yep. was just um, fresh cassava as a, as a dough is so brilliant. We'll make sure there's, there's links in the show notes. Um, so, uh, and I've used mashed fresh cassava um, to make like AIP biscuits before, and it works really well. And that's something that you could then – play with the ratio of mashed fresh cassava to cassava flour to get that binding capacity. Cause it is very different than how cassava flour, um, sort of binds. Um, so that is, that is my one big suggestion because it also wouldn't have the impact that a gelatin egg would of getting harder and harder as it cools. Um, you'd, you'd kind of get the the consistent chemistry as you worked with it. So I do have I, one idea. I don't know if it's going to work so yeah I
0: know. so just to be clear when we said Jen we mean predominantly paleo who was the original yuca dough expert and mm-hmm. she would use fresh yuca or cassava to create like empanadas and pierogies and raviolis and like I know that she has a fried ravioli recipe on her blog because I've eaten it before <laughs> um so that is a, a really great point um And like you said, we'll put a a link there for her. And that's why she started her legit business, which now uses the Otto's cassava flour in mixes that you can buy. But she doesn't have a noodle one. It's just pizza and brownies and pancakes and all kinds of things. But no, no pasta. Families have a lot going on. Sarah, Veronica is confused. Why many of your recipes containing sugar, um, muscovado, or other cane sugar? I thought paleo and autoimmune diets did not have sugar in them. Can you please help me understand?
1: Uh, Yeah. So sugar is about dose. Um, So when we look at sugar, right, typically when we're talking about sugar, we're talking about Table sugar, which comes from sugar cane or from sugar beets, and it is predominantly sucrose, which is uh, you know a, a disaccharide made up of one glucose molecule and one fructose molecule. And we know through like bajillions of studies that frequent consumption of sugars um, is problematic and eventually can lead to things like type two diabetes. Um, high risk for cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, and that's both through the chemistry of a lot of glucose consumption and the chemistry of a lot of fructose consumption. So glucose is our main energy molecule. It's the the main um, thing from food that our cells convert into cellular energy, which is the molecule adenosine triphosphate through something called the Krebs cycle or citric acid cycle. And uh, we know that... Uh, when we consume a lot of glucose very frequently, that that can cause insulin resistance, right? So our insulin shuttles glucose into our cells. When there's a lot of glucose all the time, our cells will reduce the number of receptors they have to insulin to help to control how much glucose is getting into the cell. And then eventually also you can have the situation where the pancreas basically gets really strained and can't produce as much insulin. When that gets bad enough that blood sugar levels can, can no longer be maintained in a normal level, that's type 2 diabetes. Um, and I've you know written at length, we can put links in the show notes to various articles that describe that in detail. But fructose is the other part of that, um, that sort of chemistry. So um, fructose is metabolized differently and there's a variety of studies showing that when we consume uh, a lot of fructose, that is linked to insulin resistance as well. Uh, high blood pressure, Uh, it can cause strain on the liver and lead to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, Again, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, even increased cancer risk. And um, there's actually some scientists who believe that the um, biological effects of too much sugar are more driven by the fructose half of sucrose than the glucose half, although my personal reading of that science is that it's a perfect storm of both. Um, but the problems with high fructose is why, like high, like fructose, um, high fructose uh, corn syrup and fructose-based sweeteners have um, such a strong link to the rise in chronic disease problems. And fructose is actually more harmful in the context of vitamin D deficiency, which we've talked about on the show before. About seventy-five percent of Americans have deficient or insufficient levels of vitamin D. So um, all that together, though is a case against high sugar consumption. It's not a case against all sugar consumption. So what's really fascinating is that there really is compelling science showing that the sugar limit uh, for us for most days, a good limit is 10% of total calories or 25% of carbohydrates. And, um, and that, that really is, you know, a, a legit, sort of place to to limit our, our sugar intake. And that leaves quite a lot of room for a treat. Also, I think it's important to emphasize that fresh fruit, there's um, studies showing that the fructose from fresh fruit does not impact our bodies the same way as fructose from sweeteners like high fructose corn syrup or agave, for example, is a fructose based sweetener. Um, and so there's been studies showing that if you consume hundred grams of fructose, which is a ton, like 55 grams is the cusp for, for problematic effects. Um, so hundred grams of fructose from fresh fruit is not um, as damaging to metabolism as hundred grams of fructose from high fructose corn syrup. That study has been done. Um, and there's plenty of studies showing that about four servings of fruit per day, about 300 grams of fruit per day, um, is actually, uh, fruit has kind of this, like the more you eat up to about four servings, the lower the risk of all cause mortality. So the bigger, the improvement to health, and then it kind of plateaus. So above about 300 grams of fruit a day, you're not getting much benefit, but that's a lot of fructose. That's about. 45 grams of fructose on average. So, so three, I don't know, several things here. I don't know how many things, I was gonna say three, but then I'm not, I'm not actually sure there's three. So one is sugar, how sugar impacts our health is in part due to its source. Is it a refined sugar added to a treat or is it a whole food source like fruit? Um, So when I'm thinking about that 10%, I'm not counting fruit. I am counting only added sugars. Um, Things like honey or cane sugar or maple syrup would go into that 10%. Um, and that sugar's impact on our health, even sugar's impact on how our immune system is working, is in part related to nutrient deficiencies like vitamin D deficiency. Um, but also the the biggest impact is just how much we're eating, how frequently. So um, as long as we're thinking of Baked goods that use sugars as a treat. There's absolutely room for that, even on the AIP. Um, it's it's not about um, it's not about eliminating all sugars. It's about uh, moderate and occasional use of sugar for a lot of us, because sugar is so um, addictive, which we've talked about on the show before. Um, it can be really hard to reduce sugar intake to a healthy level without kind of going cold turkey. So for some people going cold turkey is actually more helpful in just the habit formation of being judicious in how much sugar that we're consuming. But overall there's totally room for that in a healthy diet. As long as, as long as we're, you know, being mindful of how much we're eating and how often.
0: I think too, one of the things that, and perhaps I am intuiting it to the question, but I want to address is the idea of um, not just sugar, but higher carbohydrate, i.e. sugar being problematic, for example, on autoimmune. And we've talked extensively about um, carbohydrate being something to not be afraid of on the show. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, sugar is something to be afraid of or to avoid entirely comes from the mentality of you need to be afraid of it and yes as sarah indicated if you are um drinking soda for example on a regular basis that would be the amount of fructose that sarah is talking about in like a high fructose corn syrup right so we're not advocating for processed food consumption um But I think it's important to recognize that being afraid of fruit or being afraid of a whole food source, which the kind of sugars that are being referred to are more of a high food source than some of the alternative sugars that people are putting in these supposed like I'm using air quotes when I say healthy recipes, um, which are frankly more frightening to me from the perspective of, well, if we're talking about I, idealizing food, which in and of itself is, you know, problematic sometimes. Yeah. Um, then why are we saying, and therefore, dot, 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 this thing that we've created in a lab is what you need, right? And so, what we are making room for in this journey to optimize health, because when Sarah and I talk about paleo or autoimmune or NutriVore, Ultimately, we're talking about optimizing health. And so, if we're talking about optimizing health, being afraid of carbohydrates can have a detrimental effect on your health. And that is really kind of the root of a lot of where these questions come from, I think. And so, I just want to, I know that you've put links to a lot of the information about sugars in particular here, but I wanted to address. That head- on, because while we've talked about it in other contexts on other shows, it's important to kind of
1: revisit, I think, in this mindset for sure. I think that um, you know one of the things that I think we really want to emphasize with this show is that it's okay to indulge and that an indulgence does not, you know, having having a treat does not mean that we need to feel guilty or that we need to uh, earn it or, you know, that it's not a reward for something. It doesn't mean that, or we don't have to, you know, punish ourselves by, you know, exercising more later, right? It can just be, I ate that delicious thing and I don't eat that delicious thing all the time because I try to make sure that the majority of my diet is these really, you know, health-promoting things that I also enjoy, but obviously are not as (laughs) dopamine-inducing as this extra delicious thing that I eat sometimes and it it really can be as simple as that i think there's such a diet culture driven desire for the sugary thing that i can eat every day that um that is uh you know guilt free that doesn't that doesn't have a um problem right it's not going to harm my health this how what is what is the way that i can Uh, enjoy that flavor frequently the way that I used to and uh, feel good about it. And I think it's really important to really understand, first of all, that we can't cheat sweet. There are problems with every sweetener alternative. And I know we've got a question from Larissa that gets right at that coming up. Um, But also it's really, I think, we we kind of fall down these roads of well what about this new sugar substitute what about this new like there, there's always the new thing that comes from the that comes from this food and it's like super um industrially produced from that food right to be isolated um we have this desire to find the the cheat right to find the what's what's the what's the workaround that's going to allow me to not have to actually look at my eating habits and lifestyle habits as a whole. What is the thing that is going to mean that I can have this treat and not feel guilty? Meanwhile, I think it's really important to even look at why do we feel gu- feel guilty having a treat in the first place? Um, what is it about how our society has trained us to think about our bodies that mean that we associate that cupcake with uh, somehow being weak or failing or not having willpower, um, and I think it's really important as we talk about flowers and sugars and and carbohydrates and sweeteners, um to to look at the root of why are we always on the search for the perfect sweet taste that doesn't harm us when that doesn't exist? It's because we've managed to associate treats with um, something negative about ourselves. And I think that's really the root that we need to address is the mindset around treats.
0: I'm ready for a microphone drop. Like, (laughs) do we need to continue? Okay, yes, we do have this question on alternative sweeteners, which I think is super important um, as we've just kind of wrapped up around this, this guilt is honestly where a lot of these alternative sweeteners come from. And while the question is specific to how do we feel about other sweeteners such as stevia, erythritol, monk fruit, allulose, um, Larissa asked about, there's also so many others that I see being used. Um, In recipes, for example, there's one that's like made by the same people who make Splenda, but they've like marketed it differently. Um, And um, ones where because aspartame has um, and we did an entire show dedicated to aspartame. Aspartame is kind of more commonly known as being problematic for a variety of reasons. People will market it differently, but it's still aspartame if you look at the ingredients. Um, So there's just there's so much marketing there's so much business like i don't know probably billions but definitely millions of dollars dedicated to this idea of guilt around sweet treats that convinces people to buy these alternatives and as you said sarah we there is no cheating a sweet it's just a matter of trade-offs of what i think you're you're taking in internally. Right. And so I think that's where the science is where we can give you, but we're not here to, to like dictate what you eat or whatever. I just think it's important that people understand as you noted, like there, there is no like one thing that you're like, oh, this, and this is great. And I can eat this in unlimited quantities without ever feeling bad about myself. No, we really need to visit, like, why do
1: we feel bad about ourselves? Mm-hmm. And why is this a thing in culture in general? For sure. And I think that, um, I think that's it's really important to emphasize that um, a lot of the claims being made about these sweeteners even natural sweeteners and i i use the term here the nap the word natural pretty pretty loosely um i you know as as stacy says i'm gonna i'm gonna take your take your bit uh snake venom's natural um so you know there's <laughs> lots of things that are natural to the world that i am not going to choose to eat um so uh there, there is a health trade-off and I think it's really important to recognize that the science behind these as sweeteners is very simplistically based on what does it do to our blood sugar levels. And so um, you know saying that it's not going to raise the blood sugar levels in a diabetic is different than saying this is a good choice. It's a really myopic lens to uh, look at, a sweet flavor through. Um, and I've written about this. We'll put links in, in the show notes. Uh, we've already covered, um, aspartame on the show. Um, I actually pulled the the episode number that's episode 309. Um, but, uh, we also, there's, we'll put links in the show notes to all of our other resources on this. Um, stevia is probably the one that, um, because it is so pervasive in, uh, foods marketed to health conscious communities. Um, it's probably the one that is the most surprising for people to learn that it is an endocrine disruptor. Um, and the studies um, that have been done in the last few years have shown this quite conclusively. And uh, it also causes some undesirable changes to the gut microbiome. And I've, I've written about this um, extensively. Um, and, uh, you know, it interferes with both, both progesterone and testosterone. And, um, it's possible that contextually that could be helpful for some people, right? So, um, it's possible that how stevia impacts a woman's health pre versus post menopause may be different, Um, but I avoid BPA containing plastics because they're endocrine disruptors. I also avoid stevia. Um, I don't worry about it if I'm traveling and there's one thing and it has, it has a little bit of stevia. I don't worry about it once in a while, but it's not something I choose on a day-to-day basis. I've spent far too much time working with a functional medicine specialist on (laughs) hormone balancing and dealing with hormone deficits, uh, to then want to manipulate it with a sweetener. Um, Erythritol falls under the same sugar alcohol banner as xylitol, mannitol, sorbitol. Um, Sugar alcohols um, are highly fermentable and have been shown in a variety of studies to cause an undesirable shift in the gut microbiome, leading to gut dysbiosis and increased intestinal permeability. That's why they all have gastrointestinal side effects when you consume too much. Um, monk fruit hasn't even been approved as a food additive. It's, uh, the number of safety studies that have been done is really surprisingly low. And if you actually go and look at the, um, the studies that have been done, um, it shows organ enlargement, which is a sign of toxicity, um, at levels that are, um, fairly low, of if people are consuming it every day. So, um, monk fruit I mean, I'm not even convinced that monk fruit uh, extract, rather, I should say, it's always different than if you were eating the whole fruit. I'm not convinced monk fruit extract is even safe. And allulose is kind of like the 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 newest the newest kid on the block. It is a mirror image of fructose. Um, again, it it hasn't been studied um in depth other than to show similar to fructose, um fructose the original. Uh, sweeteners that was considered safe for diabetics until it was discovered that fructose um, increases insulin resistance. Um, what we do know about allulose is it is transported into the body by the same receptors fructose, which is called GLUT five, um, and so we have evidence that it biologically behaves similar to fructose. Um, it hasn't been as extensively studied, but in the absence of those studies, I'm going to look at it as uh, very likely that there's some similar problems to high allulose consumption as there is to high fructose consumption. So, I don't like any of these sugar substitutes. they there's uh, for you know what? I'm gaining the feeling of drinking or eating something sweet. Uh, I'm trading guilt for a health impact that i I don't see as being a good trade.
0: It's kind of fascinating to me that um, I remember reading a while ago that there was a study done on people who um, burn candles that are a sweet scent, and that it can activate an insulin response in the body. Like it's, it, it, I I say that because we we look at all these sweeteners and we think that we're doing this thing to avoid. Um, whatever it is we're afraid of in our body, right. To make this alternative, but ultimately we cannot get around how our body is going to react to sweets. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that for me, it's been about learning where I'm going to draw that line for myself. Um, you know, there are some sweeteners that I try really hard to avoid or that I, you know, won't purchase like if my kids are teenagers now and they have their own money. Like they're going to go do what they're going to do. They're going to go to the friend's house or whatever, but like I won't buy it or I won't eat it myself. And um, a lot of that is built around how I feel or what I want versus what diet culture is telling me I should do. And so diet culture is telling us we should do these alternatives versus I know when I have had monk fruit before, like as a, um, sugar substitute in something, I actually feel sick. Me personally, I feel sick from it. Um, And it is what made me realize, oh, this is, I understand what this is now, like looking into it and then being like, okay, this is not something that I want. But I know for me personally, if I look at Stevia, for example, in the science that you've provided, um, you have a great article, we'll link to it on Sarah's blog with, um, about stevia. You know, when I go in and I look at the tests based on the in vitro tests for hormone disruption versus there's also some protective effect potentially on um, serum hormone levels in rats. And what does that look like and for who and for what? Like I might make an informed decision that might be different from somebody else. But I think the key is just knowing what what it is you're consuming and why. Like I'm not consuming, if I choose to eat something that has stevia, whereas I might choose to not eat something that has, for example, high fructose corn syrup or monk fruit in it because of the way that it feels in my body. Like I just think that the most important thing is to be empowered and making a choice because it tastes good, not because it's quote unquote good for you. Um, there are sweeteners that offer more nutritional benefits, but we're not gonna tell you like we're gonna we're gonna answer Jenny's question which asks that but it's not like we're gonna tell you to go out and like have a bowl of it every day or whatever as a health food
1: right yeah I think um you know one of the things that I I just find frustrating is that the science really does not paint a strong picture of safety across the board for everybody, for these sweeteners. That doesn't mean that there aren't, right, like stevia, that doesn't mean that there isn't potentially contextual reasons why it might be a good choice for some people, but that still hasn't been studied in enough depth to really be able to answer that question. And what I find really frustrating is that it's so simplistically communicated to the consumer, as you know, sugar free, and you know, it's and here it's and healthy, right? Like it's um, and natural, even though and natural, most, right? most, even stevia, if it's
0: coming from like a natural place, by the time you're consuming it, like for example, collagen, right? Like, let we compare it to something we do love, but we did an extensive show to help people understand like what it takes to get something to that point. And when we look at stevia and the way that it's consumed, it's going through a similar, you know, multi-step process to become the thing that people are
1: putting in their goods. Right. I agree a hundred percent, but I would even argue with stevia that if you're growing it yourself and you're consuming the whole leaf as a, as a sweetener, it's still not completely clear that it's a good choice
0: like poison ivy is a whole leaf in your yard but is that something you're into I'm not no <laughs> not? super not <laughs> to be to be my own cliche um yeah and I I will add also that there we're we're going to recognize there is extensive science to also show that um sugar in basically any form will also affect your hormones right we've talked mm-hmm. about that endlessly on the show so we're not we're not saying that you know, like one is great and one is not. What we're saying is like, there is no way around your body reacting to these foods. It's just a matter of being informed, making a choice, knowing that you're doing it for the reasons that you're doing it versus like someone telling you what you should do. So let's say. Where someone is trying to make an informed decision, Sarah, um, what do you suggest if you need sweetener in your coffee, for example, um, from Jenny?
1: <laughs> I love, I love Jenny's question, which, uh, you paraphrased, um, because it's, uh, it, uh, expresses the frustration. She has with... many question marks and exclamation marks. It's so cute. <laughs> we like you, Jenny. <laughs> um, yeah so um I um again, I, I really think that it's important as a society for us to look at the emotions that we have associated with sugar intake um, and really look at understanding that a little bit of sugar, a teaspoon, in coffee every day is going to be well below 10% of calories a tablespoon in our coffee every single day is going to be well below 10% of calories from added sugars and um and so there's a there is room for us to have a little bit of sweet and not have it undermine our health um, the the trick is being able to um, not fall down that cycle of using sugar as a crutch, right? Using it because I didn't go to bed early enough last night and I'm really tired. Um, so I'm using it to keep myself awake, um, or I'm using it to help manage my stress, right and falling down that sort of, you know, snowball of of badness, of um, sugar cravings and and um, leading to higher and higher sugar intake. So part of moderating, Sugar intake, you know, re- requires dialing and lifestyle factors, um, and it requires intent. Um, and I think we can have, I think we can be intentional with our sugar intake, and still separate that from feeling guilt or uh, any of these other negative emotions, and feel like this is an intentional choice in the context of. I'm making a lot of choices that are about supporting my health. And here is a place where I am supporting my health in a different way. That's not directly related to the nutrients I'm putting into my body because I love my coffee sweet. Um, that was me pretending to be Jenny because I personally do not. Um, but so if we look at the natural sugars that are available to us, um, the cane sugars that are less refined like brown sugar, muscovado sugar, barbados sugar, um jaggery, um rapadura, they they all have some nutritional value. They tend to have some B vitamins, some some minerals. And if you look at the um byproduct of sugar refinement, molasses, Um, that's actually where most of the minerals go. When you're refining sugar, the more it's refined, right? White sugar has no nutrients whatsoever. Um, The more it's refined, all of those vitamins and minerals go into molasses. Molasses is actually the only sugar that actually has a like medium um, nutrient density. All other sugars are kind of low or empty calories. Um, But molasses actually has one and a half times more calcium per calorie than cheese and five times more iron per calorie than steak. It also is really high in copper, selenium, manganese, magnesium, potassium, most of the B vitamins except for um, B12. Um, and, uh, And it's actually, it's nutrient dense enough that a tablespoon of blackstrap molasses, which is the even richer form of molasses, has 20% of the daily value of calcium, iron, copper, and manganese for only 42 calories. So, um, molasses is my, my top choice as a nutrient dense sugar. Obviously it has a strong flavor. It actually is a flavor that works really well with coffee. Um, but I understand that's not going to be everyone's jam. Um, so the other natural sugar (laughs) that I like, did you mean to have that pun? it's
0: um, not everybody's jam. I, yes. (laughs) Okay. I, I also want to say before you moved on, I know that Jenny asked about coffee, but I really, really love molasses in savory recipes. So mm-hmm. we use it a lot, um, for example, in Sloppy Joes, when we make our Fomato sauce and you add yeah. molasses, it gives that same kind of like umami and depth of flavor that you might be missing from um, like a rich, sweetened tomato sauce. Um and we've used it in, you know, Asian type sauces and different mm-hmm. kinds of things. So it's not just for sweeteners. I, I think when we grab molasses, more often it's in a savory application than it is sweet for us. And it, it I just, I want to encourage everyone to give it a try because it's really good. I promise. It's when not just kid, for cookies, we,
1: you know. We used to spread molasses on bread. Like, obviously, I, I don't, I don't eat it ton of bread now. Um, but, uh, but that was like one of our, our go-to like spreadables when I was a kid. Um, so also that that's a whole other realm of way of thinking about molasses that I don't think is very common anymore. It probably wasn't common back then either. Um, but that's, that's just one of the memories that I have. Um, yeah, molasses. I like molasses in anything barbecue
0: Yes, yes. We have yep. I have a yep. um barbecue sauce on the blog that's like molasses, horseradish mustard um which oh, I'm going to like secret shout out to all of our podcast listeners. I have um a balanced bites meal coming out in the next couple of months that actually uses that barbecue sauce. So if people are looking for an I think it's AIP and not just nightshade free friendly, but I'll have to figure it out. But anyway, that's, I'm excited to get that out into the world because I think everybody needs more molasses in their life. So, mm-hmm. And you said barbecue. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we do that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I mean, I honestly forget how often we use it because it, it is one of our go-tos. So. Uh,
1: yeah, I I buy the big bottles. <laughs> I just buy those little bottles. What are you talking
0: about? That's not going to last very long. And it's super affordable. Way less expensive than some of these
1: alternatives that we're talking about. It's good stuff. So molasses gets a a big green check mark beside it as a um, awesome choice for a sweet flavor, um, albeit a distinct flavor as well. Um, The other natural sugar, and and here I'm using the word natural a little bit less facetiously than I was before, um, is honey. So honey is not particularly nutrient dense, right? So it does have some minerals. It does have B vitamins, a little bit of vitamin C, a little bit of vitamin K, but it actually has also a pretty high level of um, basically like phytonutrients, like phenolics. Um, It has some prebiotics in it. And it's been shown to act as a selective prebiotic for lactobacillus and bifidobacterium are two favorite probiotic species in the gut and be a selective antimicrobial for um, pathogens in the gut. So those two things, honey has been shown to be very, very good for gut health. And what's really like counterintuitive about honey is there's studies that have shown that it can help regulate blood sugar levels in diabetics. So it actually has anti-diabetic properties, um, which is probably mediated through the gut microbiome. Um, it also has a lot of antioxidants in it. Um, so honey is, it's not particularly nutrient dense, but it has enough of these sort of like functional compounds that have been shown to be health promoting that to me, I still consider it a superfood. Um, so honey, given that it also, you know, you can get honey with milder or stronger flavors depending on, uh, what particular type of flower the, the bee was hanging out by. So, um, as a way of finding a sweet flavor, that, um, doesn't have the same sort of distinct flavor as molasses. Honey's my, my other go-to. Um, and then from there I would rank, um, unrefined cane sugars, uh, maple sugar, um, even coconut sugar. I would kind of rank those all as they're okay options, but know that they're not gonna, there isn't necessarily going to be a a benefit right i can point to molasses and go nutrient dense i can point to honey at least in moderation and go there this is a functional food there's actually some some good health benefits um there's even some research showing that honey can reduce cardiovascular disease risk factors and even cancer risk like okay i'm like i can feel really i'm going to feel really good about choosing these but i'm also not going to feel guilty if i decide that maple syrup is the thing that i want for the flavor for this thing um so that that's my general approach and those are you know the sugars in there are for most of these sucrose i
0: personally also would say that if you decide to add for example like raw cane sugar and that's the way that you're going to enjoy life like that's a choice that you're making and as sarah talked earlier about the numbers and the grams and the whatever it's like if you if you want to calculate all of that like great i i just think like we're giving you the optimal ideal if you're asking us like okay, what, what has the greatest nutrient value? But I I want to make sure that we're kind of wrapping up with this idea that we're not here to demonize what choices you make and why you make them. We're here to empower you with the information to make those decisions yourself and not be influenced by this idea of, for example, being afraid of fruit, which is something that I know I had for years being a part of this alternative food community and wellness and all this kind of stuff. And I know it definitely caused hormonal boomerangs for me to then, you know, once you move into a place in your life where you're, you cannot, in my opinion, maybe someone can forever give up everything in life. Like it's just impossible. Right? So we talk often about making things sustainable for you so that you're making as many health informed decisions as you possibly can to live your life to the fullest. And if you feel deprived, and if you feel animosity towards restrictions or other things with food, that is not sustainable. And it's affecting your health in other ways that you might not be seeing or acknowledging at that time, but will build up and eventually become a problem. So I just want to kind of also give like a you know, a high five to those people who are, you know, feeling like, okay, you know what? I'm going to put a spoonful of sugar in my coffee and I'm going to move on with my life. Like, we're not here to judge you. Um, I just really encourage people to have freedom from the dogma and the pressure that the entire culture has created around being afraid of things and it's one of the things that I love about you know Sarah and I's journey with this is that we focus on the things that you can add to your life that add value and we focus on the things that if you're trying to optimize your health how can you make those changes but like if you're if you're not in a place where you're for example trying to do autoimmune protocol and you're just living your life trying to feel good about it you know, make those decisions based on what actually feels good to you and not what someone tells you you need to do <laughs> like, or, just, or, or sell you on campaign. Exactly. Thank you. Yes.
1: That's more to the point. <laughs> yeah. I think the the, just as we wrap up here, um, you know, being able to be aware of how these marketing campaigns are designed, not just to, you to buy that product, but to make you feel bad about your alternative choice. Um, and especially when they're not necessarily rooted in scientific evidence that, I mean, it's, it's tough. It's tough to, um, build that awareness of how marketing is making us feel about ourselves. Um, but, but keep in mind that, uh, negative emotions, um, have been sort of shown in, um, advertising in social media engagement, right? There's all of these different sort of psychology studies that have shown that negative emotions are more likely to drive action than positive emotions. And so there's a lot of ways that our emotions are being manipulated in a way to emphasize things like guilt, um, frustration, anger. Um, And it's not... Um, it's not a simple thing to inure ourselves against and awareness is certainly helpful, but it's, it's not the whole picture. But I think that, um, I think that we can, I'd love to sort of view this episode as sort of like inspiration to, to engage in this broader conversation about how we talk about food and talk about ingredients in a way that is positive, um, that incorporates um, body positivity and self-care and takes a step away from guilt and judgment while recognizing that not all foods are going to work for not all people. Hear, hear.
0: I love it. And I love all of these questions. And somehow, though it is over an hour, we did get through many more questions than we normally do in this period of time so thank you to everyone who submitted these questions and I want to remind you that you can hear what we really thought about the show and hear even more questions and submit questions that you want us to answer all over on patreon
1: thanks for listening and we'll be back next week do you love the whole view podcast We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you
0: can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly
1: bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode.